welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. Welcome to Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. I'm back with Marco McDonough-Meyer for the second half of our talk about her role in Convergent Energy Plus Power. After working across the United States on regulatory and energy innovation and strategy, Marco has recently taken a role with Convergent as Chief Strategy Officer for the well-positioned, storage-focused firm. So, okay, so let's talk about not the Ontario GA thing, which is a really interesting case with like 30 years of background have led to, you know, behind the meter solar making a tremendous amount of sense in Ontario. And that's kind of one of the themes that I always talk about when I talk about grid transformation is decisions made 30 years ago affect what's happening today. And it's not the internet. Um, It just takes a long time to get through these things. But one of those things is all the ancillary services that especially fast response lithium ion batteries provide. Now, I'd, I'd like you to maybe spend some cycles on the solar plus storage and the value proposition and the, the variance across regulatory regimes, because I know the, the, know it's there, but I'm not an expert in that stuff. And you are much more expert in that stuff. So, you know, that place is really interesting because there's so much hybrid renewables plus storage going in right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, share, share, share how convergent you think about those things. Yeah, sure. So solar plus storage. Well, let me take a step back for a minute. I'm, you know, I know you have a listener base that's very interested in renewables and already knows a lot about this this space, but let me take a step back and just sort of explain solar plus storage and how it's different than storage standalone, right? So when we think about putting standalone solar on a customer's site, basically the storage asset doesn't produce any electrons, obviously, right? So you are charging that storage asset during times when electricity is abundant, cheap, clean, some combination of those things. And then you are discharging it during times when none of those things are true, when electricity is particularly expensive and your utility or grid operator may either charge you a much lower rate during those times, or maybe even pay you for not being, not draining electricity from the grid during those peak times. And that's largely what that storage asset is doing for you as a commercial or industrial customer. As a small utility, that storage asset may help you save money on your transmission charges, or you might use that storage asset to provide some sort of local distribution relief because, you know, we had a customer in, we have a customer in Maine that put a battery in place to serve kind of a remote population center instead of upgrading a transmission line because they were having more tourism. And so, you know, they needed more electricity during the peak time of day, but they didn't need more electricity at night because it was day tourists, right? And so they wanted to put a battery in place rather than upgrade this very long, very expensive transmission line. And so there are certainly uses like that as well. All of those don't include solar, it's just straight up battery changing the time of day when you're using electrons. Solar plus storage is 
different in that obviously there is a generation aspect to it. So your solar panels are actually creating new electrons that you can use or that you can push back into the grid. And the reason why adding storage makes sense is to basically be able to maximize the usefulness of that asset. So there's a number of reasons why that might be. The kind of most obvious one that people think about is, well, the sun doesn't shine all day, so you may need to use, <laughs> shocking, or I guess it doesn't shine all night. It does shine I, all day. <laughs> I, I have to take a moment aside and say, there are still people who use that argument as if it's original or not something we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the solar panels in and of themselves don't work super well at midnight unless you are in Alaska on June 20th, I suppose. Even that wouldn't work super well. So what your storage asset allows you to do is obviously shift the time of day when you're getting those electrons from your, store, from your solar panel and use them later. You can also size your solar asset larger if you have a storage asset on site without having to necessarily upgrade your transmission, right? So you may, for example, as a commercial industrial customer use, let's say, one megawatt on average. And so you've got a one megawatt solar array that you could use that you could potentially, even at its peak production, use every single one of those electrons. But then that means that when the sun is behind a cloud or a little bit lower in the sky, or there's some haze today, you're not getting your full one megawatt. So maybe you wanna size it at two megawatts so that on average, you're getting something closer to one megawatt or one and a half megawatts, but your electric grid may not be set up to pull that electricity back into the grid, right? The electricity you're not using, you may not be set up to push it back onto the grid. So you put storage in place and then you can actually oversize your solar array and then really get make every single one of the electrons that you're consuming renewable because you're using your, so, your storage asset to use, use the electrons that your solar array are producing, even if you may not be using them at that exact second. And then the last reason that you might put storage along with your solar is just to smooth it out, right? A cloud goes over or you've got sort of some time of day where it's not working as well and you want to be able to have a smoother production for whatever it is that you're using it for, storage can also provide that. So sorry for the long explainer. That's, that's actually perfect. This is intended to be long explainers. Lovely. So I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of backdrop on solar plus storage, why it's useful and how it's it's pretty different than thinking about a storage standalone asset. And it's also pretty different than thinking about a solar standalone asset. And we really like to remind our customers of that because there are a lot of solar developers who are just throwing a battery in because there may be some incentives or maybe people want to have a battery. And again, if you're not sizing your battery appropriately, if you're not thinking about how you're going to dispatch it, if you don't have the software intelligence to dispatch it correctly, then it's not doing anything. It's just there for show. And frankly, batteries aren't even that pretty. So you don't really want one for show. Oh, come um, on. <laughs> a big old metal box. So yeah, so that's kind of how we think about solar plus storage. We do, um, we're actually going back to the, the thing I said earlier about our, our relationships with our customers really being partnerships. We just, we're in the process of completing or maybe just completed, I can't be public about the name, but a solar plus storage asset for an electric cooperative in PJM. And we're in the process of developing three more for them. So we really do like to work with the same customers again, because it really is only through the experience that our expertise and the usefulness of it becomes so clear. Yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about your sales cycle. I, I've been 
participated in the sales cycles to federal governments and provincial governments and state governments. And oh my God, and the utilities, it can take months or a year and a half or two years to get to the point we close the sale. So yes, farming existing clients makes tremendous strategic sense if you can do it. Just saves so much of that. They already know, they know you. Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm just imagining this. Uh, it was interesting because I was speaking to um, uh, Brendan Milstein, who's the CEO of Carbon Lighthouse. They've got a very different model that's really interesting. Briefly, what they do is they ship a box of IoT sensors to a major site with HVAC components and they get the local facilities people to slap them in the right places. And then they use their machine learning and uh, technology to then sense what all the major components in the HVAC systems, like the chiller, what their operational cycles are versus an optimal version. And then they just feed those changes to the cycle back to the facility staff and save 20% of consumption because everything's set to rule of thumb industry defaults, not optimal for the actual building. And they can do that their sales cycle is 15 minutes because they can guarantee savings because they've got a large portfolio and their sales cycle is incredibly short. So they found a way to really square the owner tenant conflict problem. And you're doing it a different way, right? Because the facilities you're on, you're really only on, uh, you, you, it's an interesting question. Uh, let, me let me test it this way. Do all your customers own the facilities that you're working in? Or do you have some where they are the commercial and industrial ones? Or do you have ones who are tenants of somebody else's building? We have some that are tenants. And sometimes they also lease the land for this, the solar array. We haven't had that be much of a problem. I mean, these are often long-term leases that they're on, mm -hmm. right? Obviously. Going back to your, your prior example, you know, I, I, I'm not familiar with that company. One of the challenges that I've had in kind of past lives working with commercial and industrial customers around lowering their usage or changing their usage to be more efficient is that they often don't want to give control to a third party, right? They're not interested, even if we can give you guaranteed savings. You know, when I worked for a demand response company, even convincing a grocery store to let you turn down their lights remotely for an emergency, you know, was not easy. And they'd much rather have their, you know, associate manager do it, who never knows what's going on when the emergency event happens. And they're like, who are you? I've worked here for four weeks, like, please go away. And so, you know, remote control is just, has always been a real challenge for efficiency companies. And one of the nice things about a storage asset is that we're not messing with their no. their operations at all. And in fact, we're often giving them more control of their operations compared to what they may have previously done, for example, for demand response. Mm -hmm. You know, they used to have to shut down line X or line Y during these peak moments. And now they don't because they have a storage asset that allows them to continue doing operations and they can focus on what they do best and we can focus on what we do best. And, and it works really well. Yeah, and I, I was I was recently looking at British Columbia's uh, demand response thing, and that's mostly through SCADA interfaces from their old electro, elect, you know, electricity management system. It's all green screen stuff, and they've got it wired into SCADA, and they actually shut down entire chunks of pulp and paper mills in the province and take five and twenty megawatts off mm -hmm. line right away. But that's a big operational hit. <laughs> you know, it's a very interesting model. So yeah, there's a lot of really interesting edge models that are emerging around this. And yours is one of them. And it's, it's really interesting 
to see, especially around different regulatory regimes. Like your, your advantage in Ontario is specific to Ontario. Mm-hmm. And solar plus storage is potentially, you know, a really um, regulatory bound thing, kind of depend upon time of use billing and peak cost billing. And that varies substantially. One of the observations I make, and you now, God, you've, you've got, you've actually worked in multiple regulatory regimes across the United States. So you've lived this. One of the observations I make is that one of the biggest inhibitors to transformation to a low carbon future is the massive patchwork of regulations and regulatory regimes within utilities and municipalities across North America. I, you must have been, you must have had some interesting conversations with a lot of people about this. Do you have any you know, observation or distilled wisdom about solutions for that? Beyond I have, just, I have endless observations. I'm not sure that any of them qualify as wisdom. Um, <laughs> I also keep forgetting that this is in fact a podcast. And so my vigorous nodding is not really translating over sound. So yes, absolutely. The patchwork of regulatory frameworks and regimes across the U.S. make rolling out new technologies, and not that storage is even a new technology, but sort of new applications of existing technologies so difficult. And, you know, this is not a new refrain, but regulatory certainty, particularly for investments that are, you know, years, decades long, is something that obviously we would like deeply, both at the national and the regional level. And so you've got kind of this multi-level of uncertainty, right? You've got geographic uncertainty, depending on what region are you in. You've got time uncertainty because you don't know how long these things are going to last for. You don't know when things may change. You don't know if there's going to be grandfathering. There's just all this stuff in the regulatory arena that make long-term planning really challenging. I spent quite a bit of time in the regulatory side in in my past life as well. So I have perhaps too many opinions on this particular area. But one of the things that I think often comes up in debates about renewables and new technologies and electricity is there's there's always this, this narrative that drives me a little bonkers around you know, well, like those new technologies, they want incentives. They want the the framework to be changed for them. They want to be treated special. And, you know, all that the new technologies are really looking for is a level playing field that values the different attributes that different assets bring to the grid, right? The reality is the regulatory framework and the market frameworks of all of these different areas were built 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when the electricity grid was very different than it is today. And of- much more dumb. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was simpler, right? And so of course it made sense that you were paid a rate for each kilowatt hour and it went from point A to point B and we had to build exactly enough power plants to exceed the peak demand and the peak minute of the peak day of the year. And that's how it was set up. And now you have assets like storage that can provide value that is not monetizable today. And so when there's Mm -hmm. these debates around, well, we need to change this regulatory regime, or we need to change this from a policy perspective, the reality is it's, it's very rarely about subsidies, quote unquote. It's almost always about changing the structure such that the additional value can be monetized effectively and that we put the incentives in place for the 
investments to be made in the assets and the technologies that are going to provide that long-term value to the grid and frankly, to all of us as electricity consumers. And giving the financial markets and the the debt uh, providers a long-term business case to hang their hat on. I've spoken to, we we talked a bit about pump storage hydro a little earlier. It's not your domain in your company. I'm big on it. I think it's going to be 60% of the 3,700 gigawatts of storage globally we're going to end up with, partly because it's by far the vast amount of grid storage today, and it's by far the biggest amount of grid storage being built in the world today. You know, everything else is just a tiny little spec. You know, convergent is great. It's a tiny fraction of one pump storage hydro facility. It's just kind of a different scale thing, um, which has its own problems. But when I was speaking to Mark Wilson of Intelligent Land Use in Scotland, who's building, among other things, pump storage hydro on Loch Ness, which is cool, he's going to West, New Westmin- he's going to Westminster to lobby for inclusion of pumped hydro with nuclear and carbon capture in the RAB model, which is the same model that gives the people long-term you know, you know, long-term fiscal stability to enable strategic assets like storage to be implemented. You know, and was, you know, certainly it's challenging for utilities. Right now, we're at the very beginning of this exploration. You know, you are participating in specific ways. Other utilities like California and, you, you and South Australia have put in place, you know, 100 megawatt hour batteries from Tesla, and there's some other ones from, uh, I think Siemens and LG have both got utility scale facilities that are in that scale as well. But they're doing very specific demand shaving activities in very specific regulatory regimes. And it's, it's niche right now, and they can do that and they can make money, but it's tough for the larger scale that we'll need. This episode of Clean Tech Talk is sponsored by Flow, the maker of the Flow Home X5. The Flow Home X5 is an industry-leading home EV charging solution that features a stylish and durable aluminum casing and allows you to schedule, monitor, and optimize your charging via the Flow mobile app. Flow offers 24-7 customer support to help with installation and troubleshooting. To learn more about the Flow Home, please visit store.flow.com. That's store.flo.com. I think we're now getting into the projection part. So I, I speak to Mark Z. Jacobson moderately regularly. I, I respect his work deeply on 100, you know, 100% renewables by 2050. And I think it's an, a really great scenario to have good arguments about. And I disagree with him on some stuff and I agree with him on other stuff. But every time I do the math, I typically find he's, you know, my math and his math and his team's math, because I do stupid math and he's got like economists and stuff like that doing it. But I keep finding that there's a strong relationship between his stuff and what my math shows. It, it got consilience. So his stuff says 3,700 gigawatts of storage, not gigawatt hours, gigawatts in 24 grid um, zones around the world. And then there's a multiple of that. Right now, the multiple from uh, gigawatts to gigawatt hours is actually really high because a lot of pump storage hydro is there, but a lot of that exists on existing dams. So the calculation looks at the dam's capacity, which is weird. You know, most of it's going to be closed loop pump storage hydro, which is gigawatt scale, but that's like a kilometer, a square kilometer pond at the bottom, square kilometer pond at the top, 400 to 500 meters of 30 foot diameter tunnels between them. And that's a gigawatt hour of capacity of of storage energy with anywhere from 100 to 500 megawatts of capacity. 
right? So it's like China Light and Power's facility in Guangdong. It's 2.4 gigawatts, but it's 25 gigawatt hours of capacity sufficient to run Hong Kong for about 10 hours, right? So you've kind of got these relationships, but those things are built as strategic assets by very deep pocketed long-term investors. And grid storage, you have to start thinking of it that way. The vast majority of storage that's been built to date was built to give nuclear plants and coal plants something to do at night to make them more economically productive. <laughs> and we don't have baseload power that has to keep chugging away, that we have to give something to do, and then load shift their, their stuff. I mean, we're doing that in exactly that's why the pump storage hydro in Ontario was expanded, not to deal with wind and solar, the variability of renewables, but to deal with all that 55% of nuclear. So all these things, that's one set of concepts that I have in my brain around these things. The second set of concepts that I have is we're at the very tiny part of the wedge. We have 3,700 gigawatts to go. We've got 170 gigawatts of legacy storage on the grid and about 60 gigawatts of pump storage hydro on construction, which is five, six in China, by the way. And then we've got convergent with much smaller pieces here and there. Mm -hmm. you know, lithium ion is fit for purpose for peak shaving same day from solar, not good for next day. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the couple of tight coupling of energy and power in the form factor doesn't allow you to make the bathtub bigger for that MIT study you've probably looked at. There's a great analogy that the investment bankers introduced me today, yesterday. And so that one says, we're going to see a bunch of different changes and we have to see the regulatory stuff come in place. And we're gonna see different jurisdictions get it right earlier. And I'm gonna tell a story about Australia, two stories about Australia. I, I, part of my background is massive public health stuff. I built the world's, I helped build the world's most sophisticated communicable disease and outbreak management solution. And it's being used to manage COVID in Canada and the Middle East right now. So I've got that in my background. And every time we dealt with public health and health, we kept going, well, Australia already did that. They've already got a public health record for every citizen in Canada, in Australia. Oh, and they've already got secure electronic communications between doctors and patients. And then yesterday, or, um, this morning when I was reviewing, I'm, I'm reviewing a, um, a microgrid book by an acquaintance. So I'm, I'm on page 23 of my detailed notes. And I was, came across his reference to the, you, you, you'll just, you, this will make you want to go to Australia, I think. I already want to go to Australia, so I, I know, don't, it's a I don't place. need more fuel for the fire. <laughs> well, they have a singular regulatory structure for utilities that is at the national level. They don't have this massive patchwork that we have in North America, where, you know, especially in the United States, where it's so much stuff is devolved down to the state. Health in Canada is devolved down to the state. And so Australia, like Singapore, because you and I both... I'm, I, I think I remember Singapore more clearly, possibly, because I lived there in the past decade as an adult. But still, the city hall and the parliament are side by side, and the city and the state are geographically contiguous, and they have one jurisdiction for all these things. There are simpler places, places that are easier to innovate. So the question from, I, I think for me, you know, as a strategist, and you as a strategist, I always say, where will innovation emerge in pockets of the future 
and which that, that can then spread. Mm-hmm. Um, in your place, you're a professional in the storage industry with uh, you know, 15 years of paying attention to the space and dealing with regulatory stuff, all inside the United States, but now in Canada as well. Do you have a sense of the pocket of the future for grid regulatory uh, stuff for storage? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I don't think that I can say that there is one region that's doing it perfectly and all regions should exactly copy it. As you mentioned, my knowledge is quite limited to North America. And the other piece of kind of brackets that I'll put around the framing that I think about storage is I I really think about storage in the sense of it being a distributed asset. And I know that obviously pumped hydro and utility scale storage are not distributed assets, but the kind of storage that I've been looking at for certainly at Convergent and in my past life at NLX was really the distributed side, right? And so when I think about storage and who's doing it well and what regions does it make sense, I'm really thinking about it in the context of storage as the distributed asset and not as a pumped hydro kind of capacity asset at the grid level. Obviously you can aggregate all of the distributed assets and provide grid level capacity as well. So places in general, the kind of frameworks that make sense. Number one, value for capacity, right? A lot of, not all of the US value capacity today. Mm -hmm. So having a capacity market or some sort of capacity charge is extremely useful for a lot of things, not just storage. But as we think about the grid evolving into the future and thinking about time of use, either time of use rates, capacity charges, some combination of those things is obviously foundational for storage to make sense. Um, I think capacity, the valuing capacity is something that's so integral to the way you think about it, but there's there's potential ambiguity in there. So if you could disambiguate mm. what you mean when you say that. Absolutely. So when I talk about valuing capacity, what I mean by that is that the value of the electrons that you provide should be separated into one, you have provided an electron that is being used to power something. And two, when you have provided that electron. And that's really what capacity comes down to, right? And so I think we all know kind of instinctively that a kilowatt hour at 2 a.m. is less useful than a kilowatt hour at 2 p.m., right? I think like we all know that, but that's actually not how the markets are set up in a lot of the country. In a lot of the country and a lot of our electricity bills, whether you use electricity at 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. costs you the same. Mm -hmm. And so you know, when we think about incentivizing behavior, like having people turn on their dishwashers late at night, instead of right at 6 PM, when everybody's coming home and turning on their lights and doing all the things, you know, those sorts of behavioral changes really can come from price signals. And that's true at the, at the macro level as well. It's true for big industrial electricity users. It's true for grid design. It's true for all of those things where if you can figure out a way to value when the electricity is being used or when it is being produced by pricing, capacity is typically how we do it. That makes a huge difference for storage because storage in and of itself isn't producing new electrons. It's time shifting when they're available. And Mm -hmm. so that the fact that that's not kind of the standard foundation for all electricity pricing is kind of crazy if you think about it, because nobody even somebody who knows nothing about electricity markets can clearly tell you, of course, it's more useful at 2 p.m. than 2 a.m., but that's just not how it's priced today. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it gets into, you mentioned consumers, individuals versus industrial. And I, I like to make the, um, I, I go back to 
I don't know if you spend any time um, with uh, cognitive psychology, um, but I've spent far too much time talking to people like John Cook and um, Stefan Lewandowski and reading Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and stuff like that. You and I, as individuals, are mostly irrational. We make decisions, and then five to six seconds later, we've rationalized why we made that decision. Absolutely. It's just what, just who we are. And this doesn't mean we do, do it badly. It just means we make some decision and usually it's enough and it's the right decision and good enough to go by. But on electricity rates, behavioral assessments of individuals around time of use billing finds that they get incredibly poor changes if humans have to do the changes themselves. Mm-hmm. People are not, there's a, a the, the way that the cogn- cogn- cognitive load works they just kind of don't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, they actually did a study in Ontario uh, with time of use billing the, out of a psychology department. What they found was that humans were sent price signals on text messages saying kilowatt hours cost is going up. Um, 11% of them would change their behavior because they got the price signal in real time. And then if they doubled the price signal, they got 13%. We're price insensitive. Any price change makes us do a subset of us do something, but a much bigger price change doesn't make us do it. However, your customers are commercial customers and they're sociopathic organizations run by spreadsheets. (laughs) They're very subject to bottom line calculations of best economic benefit over time. They're all system two thinking per Kahneman. They're all thinking slow. And so, you know, as I look at this, we have to give consumers things which do this automatically for them. And we have to give businesses the data which enables them to make rational cost decision choices because they will make those rational cost decision choices. Uh, Us humans will buy pickup trucks we need to get to tow a boat to a lake once a year and then drive them for groceries and to take our kids to school the rest of the time. Not me, but we see this all the time. So it's really interesting to see and think through the incentive structures for different categories of consumers and how we make it easy to achieve those choices. But in the United States, you've been in multiple regulatory regimes. We got a diversion on value and capacity. Do you see a place that's valuing capacity in in their regulatory and fiscal structures in a state or utility better than anybody else? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, for storage and solar plus storage in particular, Massachusetts seems to have done quite well. You know, the ISO New England does value capacity. There is capacity pricing there. And then Massachusetts has also put in a number of regulatory frameworks that make sense for storage and have certainly incentivized storage and solar plus storage development. So I know a lot of the other New England states are looking at Massachusetts as a state that has has done it well and, you know, we as Convergent would certainly support other states following in that Massachusetts model. You know, PJM is a very developed market and they do a very good job of valuing capacity. Currently, capacity is not valued particularly highly in PJM because of the way that they have, I guess, done their their grid forecasting and the amount of excess capacity that they have. But the fact that the market is set up that way is certainly helpful to us. And there are There are a number of regions in PJM in which storage makes economic sense today. And I anticipate in the coming years, that number of regions will only grow. So I think that that's a big part of it. The other thing is that not every utility has to be public about their real-time load. 
which again is something that kind of boggles my mind sometimes. But you know, certainly in markets like PJM and ISO New England and California, real-time load is, is knowable, it's public, and that allows businesses and you know, developers like us to manage consumption to meet the needs of the grid, which is that we lower consumption during the times when grid peaks are at their highest. But you know, Duke doesn't have to publish their load data in real time. So if you want to shave your peaks in Duke, you are going to have a really hard time doing that. And I just find that kind of crazy because these are regulated utilities. And you well, would think it, that- It is Duke though. <laughs> They're not doing it. They're doing it for the regulatory capture that Duke is a subject to is quite remarkable. It's it's a fascinating case study. I've, I've researched and published on that one. It's uh, It's a special case. <laughs> But yeah, it's not the best case. Massachusetts. It's interesting to me, by the way, brief aside, we've only got about eight minutes left. I don't respect for your time. But Massachusetts has now turned out to be the a third case where it's regulatory innovation that I've stumbled across in the past few years. It's leading the pack around corporate corporations and incorporation. It was a, an intellectual thought leader in the United States and still is one of the most innovative corporate structuring states in the United States. Similarly, I, I spent some time a couple of years ago for a client doing scenarios for a completely, mostly off-grid, completely legal uh, agricultural product in Canada, a 100,000 square foot greenhouse in the prairies that, by the way, at 7 a.m. on December 21st, the coldest, darkest day of the year, if it was minus 40 and windy, you didn't actually have to turn on the heat because the lights would be sufficient. <laughs> But when I was doing, looking at leading practices for some of the stuff around this, Massachusetts was also leading practice for this completely legal agricultural substance in Massachusetts, which is not legal at the federal level in the United States. <laughs> so it was, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure why Massachusetts is so innovative in, in these ways, but good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that they're also leading in terms of storage. I'll, I'll pay more attention to that specific facet of their innovative leadership. Because like William Gibson says, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So it's a great way of putting it. Yeah. New York is also doing some really interesting stuff with storage and how they're valuing it, that how they're valuing it as a grid asset, thinking about, you know, particular avoiding distribution upgrades and things like that. So New York is also doing some interesting stuff. New York and Massachusetts are actually come at coming at it um, with some from different angles, but they're both interesting. And of course, living in Boston, I got to plug Massachusetts a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, New York is challenged, right? Because it's such a massive demand center. Yes. It gets, it's been getting electricity from Northern Quebec since 1980. We're putting a new HVDC in there. But their Indian Point nuclear reactor, you know, 50, what is it, 50 kilometers, 30 miles upstream, going away. Right. You know, and so it has a very significant peak challenge. You know, and the, the book on microgrids, you know, just, there's a lot of people I speak to uh, in the energy industry who live in suburban America in detached homes with solar panels on their roof, who thinks, who as a result, statistically and cognitively miss the fact that the vast majority of people don't live like that. The United States is a global outlier, but even in the, the suburbs, you know, 20% of the people in the suburbs of the United States live in multi-unit residential buildings, mm-hmm. you know, not suitable for full load met by solar panels in the roof, uh, not suitable for solar cars in the garage. 
know, so it's just this, these blinders that people have cognitively are interesting to me. But for you, you've now taken on this new role in context of, you know, corporate secrets and all those types of things. What are the top three things you're kind of focusing on in your new role? I mean, if you can share that, because I think that's be really interesting and insightful. Yeah, top three things. So when I think about the areas that I'm going to be focusing on and that Convergent is focusing on, we are incredibly lucky to be at a place right now where even if we were to do everything terribly, which we have no intention of doing, of course, that the storage industry is really taking off, right? You look at just storage and solar plus storage in North America, you're looking at, you know, most projections are 40, 50, 60% CAGRs, even in the next five years. So you're looking at a market that is just exploding because of the need for managing renewables, the need for thinking about uh, distributed resources as increasingly commercial and industrial customers want to take more control over how they use energy, when they use energy, what kind of energy they're using. So you've got all of these massive tailwinds. So a big part of my job is just making sure that we are positioned to take advantage of those tailwinds. And I think in a lot of ways, we already are. We have this long history of building these sorts of assets. We have kind of a, a, a dependable reputation that we build what we say we're going to build and we're going to hold it for the long term. So we're interested in making sure that the asset performs as it should. We have this proprietary software that allows us to use it intelligently. So we're really well positioned to take advantage of this market growth. I think one of the areas that I want to spend a lot of my time is around focus right? Because there is so much happening that it's really easy to be like, oh my gosh, look at this other new storage thing that's happening over here, or these companies want to do X and this company wants to do Y. And we have to remind ourselves, you know, we are really good at building battery storage assets for, in the mid-market size for commercial industrial customers, for utilities, for municipalities and co-ops. We've built our business on that. And of course, if there are super interesting opportunities that are outside of our core business, we should look at those. But let's not get distracted by the bounty of opportunity that's out there because there is so much that we can do really core to what we're doing because this market is growing so quickly. And what a luxury, right? You know, every time in the past, when I think about strategy roles that I've had, it's always, well, growth is starting to stagnate. So what else should we be looking at? And here we are in this awesome time where there's so much growth literally in the core of what we're doing that we need to execute well, we need to focus on what we're doing well, we need to obviously accelerate our sales, and we're poised to do that. So I think a big part of what I get to do is really think about that focus. I haven't mentioned this earlier, but you know we are owned by a private equity firm called ECP, mm-hmm. Energy Capital Partners, and they want to deploy capital. And it's a, you know, we have a great relationship with them and they're interested in our growth. And so again, we have great financial backers who are interested in growing this business. The market is interested in growing. So it's really about moving as quickly as we can while keeping the train on the rails, right? We don't want to go off and do crazy things just because there seems to be opportunity. So I'd say, I don't know if that's three things. That's probably either one thing. That's good enough. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think that's really... It's exciting. There's so much opportunity for storage in North America and certainly across the globe, even though I'm not I'm not looking beyond North America. And so except um, uh, for the Australian know. utility people, you know, you've, you've heard her say, oh, yeah, Australia. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, come back when it's February in Boston and I'll have more thoughts about Australia. You know, <laughs> in September, I like it here. 
Okay, Mariko, we're we're at the end of the thing. What I want to do, what I like to do is close these things with giving you the opportunity. You've got a a global audience, about 50% in the United States, 50% outside, lots of India and Europe and Japanese um, followers. You have a moment with an audience. You know, it's an open-ended opportunity for you to say something to them. What would you say? Hmm, I need a minute to think. I don't want to. I don't want to waste my opportunity here. Let me think for a moment. Yep, absolutely. I mean, this is probably preaching to the choir, given your audience and the subject matter that you already focus on. But I think it's become so clear that the climate crisis will require rethinking how we do everything, not just energy production and energy use, but transportation and food and literally everything we do. And so I'd encourage people to use that lens to think about their investments, about their business strategy, about maybe their personal decisions, because I think even just over the last year, it's become clear how much the climate crisis is going to permeate decision-making policy and businesses. But I think it's only going to accelerate as we see the impacts of climate change become more real, become more tangible, become more terrifying. And I think that we really have an opportunity to address the climate crisis through the technologies and innovations that are available to us. And so, you know, if I could wave my wand and be queen of the world, there are a lot of policy changes that I would make that would incentivize the right decisions when it comes to doing what we can to limit the impact of the climate crisis, particularly on the global poor. And obviously, sadly for me, I do not have that wand or that level of power. But that's really what I think about all the time when I think about Convergent and what we're doing and why we're doing it and why I'm you know, editing some PowerPoint slide at two in the morning. That's, that's what I think about. It's like, this matters. You know, This isn't just about building a company, which is super fun or making some money, which is always nice. But it's, it's really about making sure that these renewable assets that are out there are going to provide the energy that the maximum amount of energy that they can for the lowest carbon footprint. And without storage and other kinds of innovative solutions, we're not going to get there. And so figuring out a way to bring all of those online, to make that innovation happen and to make it core to the next decade and several decades of evolution, I think is going to be vital to, to making things work in 2050 and beyond. Well, thank you, Marika. And um, in terms of having the magic wand, your career trajectory has suggested that you might have a a lot more magic wand, uh, you know, capability in the future. Just saying. Well, Um, thank you so much. (laughs) I hope so. So so Marika, Thank you so much for coming. You know, this has been Clean Tech Talk. I've been speaking with Mariko McDonough-Meyer, who was recently named the Chief Strategy Officer of Convergent Energy Plus Power, who do mid-market storage and storage plus solar for commercial, industrial, utility, and um, community clients around North America. Mariko, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A C C 
O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.